Welcome back to The Emily Show. We have a quick update on the eight passengers case today that I thought was very interesting with some new filings late, late last week from the prosecutor in Utah. We're going to talk about exactly what those mean and when we will have an answer. And then we're going to be talking about the Dan Markle murder because his mother-in-law has been arrested. She was just in court for arraignment as I am recording this. Her son has just or will just have been sentenced. Um, There's not a lot of discretion there in the Charles Alderson sentencing. And there's a lot going forward in this case. And I know some of you have followed it for quite a while. Some of you haven't followed it at all. So we're going to be doing a breakdown of that case and the arrest of the mother-in-law of Dan Merkel, who seemed to have bought a one-way ticket to flee the United States to a country with no extradition right after her son, Charles Alderson, was convicted of that murder. So we're going to be talking about all of that and more today. Let's get into it. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. Not only is it the holidays, but, you know, it's also the end of the year. So it is the perfect time to do some of the adulting things that maybe you've been putting off. And today's sponsor, Policy Genius, makes it easy to get the right life insurance for you at the best price. Policy Genius does not work for the insurance companies. So they recommend the policy that best fits your needs. I know that if something happens to me, I need my family to be covered for the income that I'm no longer bringing in. And that's true for you, whether you are a parent or a caregiver or have someone that depends on you. But with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $2.92 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options even offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. And Policy Genius knows how valuable your time is, and their technology makes it super easy to compare quotes and find the best fit. Your family deserves a peace of mind, and a life insurance policy through Policy Genius can help give it to them. Head to policygenius.com/lawnard or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quote today. So if you're ready to see how much you can save, head to policygenius.com/lawnard. Let's get back to today's episode. Real quickly to get started on the updates with regard to the eight passengers case, Ruby Frankie and Jody Hildebrand. I did talk about the fact that I would be mostly covering this case on the podcast, and there were some interesting filings by the prosecution. It's so strange because every time I take a look at this docket, there's been no updates since September And there had been quite a lot of activity right after the arrests made in this case, and then just radio silence. The defense attorneys had made extradited or um, sped up motions to hear the bail for both defendants and then took those off calendar and said they needed more time because of discovery and then nothing. I don't know if they are discussing potential plea deals. I'm not quite sure what's going on, which is why I found this 
or these two filings so interesting? We're going to take a look at the filings for both defendants today from the prosecution. They are pretty quick, and then we are going to get into talking about the Dan Markle trial. So let's get into that. This was filed on December 7th, 2023 by the prosecution. It is a simple one-sentence filing. Um, Eric W. Clark, Deputy Washington County Attorney, hereby requests a waiver hearing in the above-captioned matter on December 18th, 2023 at 11 a.m. Let's go to the date for Jody Hildebrand. That was the one for Ruby Frankie. And then we will talk about what this means and what I think about it. As to Jody Hildebrandt, the same exact sentence that the Deputy Washington County Attorney requests a waiver hearing on December 27th, 2023 at 11 a.m. These waiver hearings are to request waiver of the preliminary hearing. I would be very surprised if the prosecution, after months of silence, put this on the docket to have a hearing in front of the court without already having agreement of the defendants that this was going to happen. I will be very surprised if these defendants do not waive their right to a preliminary hearing. Their attorneys have now had several months to review the discovery in the case. Remember, the preliminary hearing is just a probable cause hearing to show the base level evidence that these defendants are likely to have committed these crimes and can continue to be held until there is a trial. Not having a preliminary hearing allows this case to go forward a bit more quickly towards trial, or if they are negotiating a plea deal, it saves the witnesses from having to come in to do a preliminary hearing when there may be plea deal negotiations going on behind the scenes. I will be very interested to see what happens next, but after the arrest, other than Ruby Frankie's husband, Kevin Frankie, filing for divorce, there hasn't been a lot in the public-facing docket that we've seen in this case, which leads me to believe there are at least some conversations going on behind the scenes because nobody's complained about the fact that the time for preliminary hearing has well passed in this case and the defense attorneys aren't saying, hey, the state has exceeded their time limit for preliminary hearing. Why aren't we going to preliminary hearing? So I imagine this has already been negotiated and they're just formally putting it on the docket that the defendants will each separately come into court. The court will ask if they waive their right to preliminary hearing. The defendants will say yes. The court will ask them if they understand and have been advised about what that means and probably give them a little bit more of an advisement. And that will be it. And then maybe the court will set new dates. So we will see what happens on December 18th and December 27th respectfully. But again, I will be very surprised if these defendants don't waive their right to preliminary hearing, which means the public will probably not know much more about this case until it goes to trial. But if it doesn't go to trial, we might not know much more about this case if plea deals are entered. And if they do, those will probably pop up on the docket pretty last minute. With all of that, that's all the updates there are in the eight passengers case, let's move on and talk about everything that has gone on with Markle's murder with the mother-in-law. And I, I was so surprised at the timing of her arrest shortly after Charlie's conviction. We're going to go through this is kind of my thought process for the order of this podcast today. We're going to go through the probable cause affidavit as to Donna 
Alderson. We're going to go through that PCA and we're going to talk about what facts the state thinks will, you know, will be shown um, and what was probable cause for her arrest. We're going to go through that. We will briefly talk about what the other defendants in the case who have been convicted have been sentenced to, what I think uh, that Charlie will be sentenced to, which will happen before this episode airs, but after I record it on Tuesday, December 12th. However, it's a mandatory life sentence, so there's not much that's going to be surprising in the sentencing. I'm sure there will be some impact statements um, from the victim's family, but not much more than that. I don't think we will see any members of the defendant's family in court. And then we're going to go through the arraignment hearing that happened on December 11th, the defense's motion to release Donna from custody, and we'll be talking about those hearings after we go through the probable cause affidavit. We're also going to talk just briefly about the search warrants, and then if this is a case you would like me to continue to follow, just let me know in the comments and in the reviews of the podcast so that you can let me know this is a case you're interested in. because. After the trial had passed, and there were other cases I was covering during the trial of Charlie Edelson, but once Donna was arrested, I was like, okay, they're going to continue on these prosecutions. And I thought after watching this case that we might see that Charlie's prosecution was the last one in this grouping of prosecutions. But when they arrested Donna as she was trying to flee the country, or seeming to seemingly trying to flee the country to a country that has no extradition treaty with the United States, I was very surprised that they had finally made that arrest um, and that they were pursuing that prosecution. And I will talk some about that, but we have lots and lots to discuss. So with all of that, let's get into the probable cause affidavit and go through, for those of you that are new to this case, go through kind of the background facts as the police laid them out, because I think that's the most helpful timeline because this case is um, a complex murder for hire case. All right. So what we are looking at for those of you on the audio is filed on November 13th, 2023. It's a summary of offense and probable cause affidavit for the charges of first degree murder, conspiracy to commit first degree murder, and solicitation to commit first degree murder. These are the charges that Donna Alderson's son was also convicted of by a jury on what November 7th 2023 so his conviction was barely a week before this arrest and then this was submitted to a grand jury and then indicted on those same three charges so we're going to go through the summary of offense and again for those of you that have followed this case it is going to be a briefer overview than what you might have seen. This case has been going on since 2014 when the murder happened. So for those that have followed it closely, this will be an overview or a refresh. For those that have not followed this case, hopefully this will give you a whole overview of why this case um, has really caught the public's attention, the wildness of it, and the amount of time it has taken for prosecutions to happen in this case from a murder that happened in July 2014. So going to the summary of offense and probable cause affidavit, quote, this affidavit sets forth probable cause to believe that Sigfredo Garcia and Luis Rivera murdered Florida State University law school professor 
Daniel Markle, and that the murder was arranged through Catherine, I'm going to pronounce Catherine's last name badly, Magbana, I think, Charles Adelson, Donna Adelson, in violation of Florida statutes, murder per chapter 782. On Friday, July 18th, 2014, at 11.02 a.m., a reporting of a shooting was received at 2116 Trescott Drive, the home of Florida State University law professor Daniel Markle. Upon arrival, Tallahassee police officers found Markle slumped in the driver's seat of his vehicle from an apparent gunshot to the head. Markle was transported from the scene to the local hospital where he later died from the injuries sustained during the shooting. The investigation of the crime scene found no indication that this incident was part of any other incident, such as burglary or robbery. A neighbor heard a loud bang and looked out his window where he saw a small silver or light-colored vehicle resembling a Prius backing out of the victim's driveway. He walked over to check on the victim, discovered him in distress, and called 911. Investigators located the victim's ex-wife, Wendy Adelson, at a local restaurant and transported her to the Tallahassee Police Department for an interview. During the interview of Wendy, she made statements suggesting that the murder of her ex-husband, Markle, could have been arranged by someone on her behalf without her knowledge. Isn't it a strange thing to just be like, oh, somebody could have done that on my on my behalf? It's an odd thing. It's an odd thing going through the PCA. So in this initial interview with police, the ex-wife, after a reportedly substantially contentious divorce, was told that her ex-husband and the father of her children was shot and said, well, somebody might have done that for me. Okay. Wendy indicated her parents were very angry at the victim and further suggested that someone could have arranged the murder thinking it would help her. She specifically mentioned that her brother, Charles, aka Charlie, joked about hiring a hitman to kill Markel in the past. She said her brother makes a lot of jokes in bad taste and had previously commented that he looked into hiring a hitman, but it was cheaper to buy her a television as a divorce gift. Wendy indicated that she did not think her brother would actually commit this crime. It should be noted that Wendy's mother, Donna, set a television repair appointment on July 11th, 2014, for Wendy's television to be repaired on the morning of the homicide, July 18th, 2014. Records obtained from Best Buy show a service was completed on her television the morning of July 18th, 2014, the same day as the homicide. So I am going to generally be referring to people by first name because a number of them all have the same last name. All of the um, Edelsons all have the same last name. So we're going to go with Donna, the mom, Charlie, the son who was just convicted, Wendy, whose ex-husband is the victim here as we go through all of this. Wendy stated that after the divorce, she wanted to relocate to South Florida with her children. She felt her former in-laws would suspect her of murdering their son since she was denied the ability to move by the court. Wendy filed for divorce on September 10th, 2012. Wendy also a professor at Florida State University. I don't know if that comes up in the PCA, but just in case anybody's wondering. The divorce was later finalized by a marital settlement agreement on July 31st, 2013. Investigators reviewed voluminous documents, including emails, text messages, and court documents. The review determined Wendy and her brother Charles, as well as their parents, Harvey and Donna, were determined to have Wendy and the two children relocated to South Florida, where 
that family, the Aldisons, resided after her divorce from Markel. Markel objected to his ex-wife moving his children to South Florida, and on June 20th, 2013, Leon County Circuit Judge Hobbs formally denied, with prejudice, the motion to relocate with the children. So as part of a divorce, the divorce settlement, part of it was that the children would stay in Tallahassee closer to the father not going down to South Florida with the mother's extended family. After the court's denial, Wendy's parents, especially her mother, Donna, repeatedly tried to convince Wendy to coerce Dan into allowing the relocation to South Florida. Donna, the mother, suggested the family offer Dan a million dollars to allow the relocation with Donna and her husband, Harvey. Harvey has not been arrested. Wendy has not been arrested. Most everybody else has been prosecuted in this. So Donna and her husband, Harvey, were going to contribute a third. Wendy would contribute a third, and Charles would contribute a third. So they were just going to divide this up, divide up a million dollars, and offer him a million dollars to let his children move to where he might see them. Donna also suggested that Wendy threatened to convert the children to Catholicism, knowing that Dan was very observant in his Jewish faith and that the religious practices of the children were of the utmost importance to Dan. So it was, if According to the probable cause affidavit, if he doesn't let you move the children to the other end of the state, a large state, move the children to the other end of the state, we could offer him a million dollars. And if offering him a million dollars doesn't work, we can threaten to change the children's religion, something that would be very upsetting and potentially coercive to their father. Wendy, the ex-wife, Wendy's prior boyfriend, Jeff Case, stated that Wendy disclosed to him that Charles, Charlie, the brother, had seriously looked into hiring a hitman in the summer of 2013, and he was told it would cost either $15,000 or $50,000. Case also reported that when he was visiting Charlie with Wendy in the spring of 2013, Charlie bragged about being connected to a Cuban criminal element. Mm-hmm. It was learned that around the time of the murder, Catherine was involved in a personal relationship with Charlie. Catherine's cell number was, call records show that Catherine was one of Charles's top contacts, and text communication confirmed the relationship was more than a friendship. It was later confirmed by Catherine that Charlie enlisted her, who then enlisted the father of her two children, Sigfredo Garcia, to carry out the murder. So Charlie is dating Catherine, Catherine goes to the father of her children, Sigfredo, and says, yo, can you help in a murder, in a murder for hire? So could we, could we do that? So Catherine tries to get the father of her children to kill her boyfriend's sister's ex-husband, Garcia, the father of Catherine's children, Sigfredo enlisted Riviera's assistance, and Catherine, Garcia, and Riviera were compensated for their actions. Catherine was the only link between Dan, the victim, and the shooters, Garcia and Rivera. Catherine's only ties to Dan, the victim, are through Charles, the brother-in-law, and a couple instances where she met Wendy, because she was dating Wendy's brother. The only way that Catherine, Garcia, and Rivera knew of Dan and his relationship with the entire 
Adelson family was through Charlie. While in the interview room, Wendy wanted to call her parents to notify them of the incident, the shooting. It took time for the victim to pass after he had been shot. So it seems to me from going through the probable cause affidavit and other reporting on this case that at this point, the victim had not passed yet because that took a number of hours um, after he was shot in his vehicle. So while in the interview room, Wendy, the ex-wife, wanted to call her parents to notify them of the incident. While contemplating aloud as to what she would say, she told the victim advocate sitting next to her that her parents were angry with Dan, the victim, and described it as a, quote, very fucked up situation. Wendy then called and talked to her mother, Donna. After notifying Donna of the shooting, Wendy asked her to notify Charles of the shooting so Wendy would not have to call and do so. After Wendy's conversation with her mother, Donna called Charlie's cell phone at 7.11 p.m. and went to voicemail. Charlie then called Donna's cell phone at 7.13 p.m. with a call duration of 5 minutes, 47 seconds. At 7.42 p.m., Charlie called Donna again with a duration of 6 minutes, 31 seconds. At 7.36 p.m., Charlie called Catherine, his girlfriend, with a call duration of 2 minutes, 49 seconds. Wendy's parents Harvey and Donna made contact with the lead TPD investigator at Dan's memorial service on Sunday morning, July 20th, 2014 in Tallahassee. They agreed to contact the investigator to arrange an interview before returning to South Florida. The following day, the investigator contacted Wendy on her cell phone. Once the investigator identified himself, Wendy claimed to have a bad connection and the call was terminated. Less than five minutes later, Wendy's attorney called the investigator and informed him that Wendy left town with her children and parents en route to South Florida. The attorney could not provide a date for Wendy's return to to Tallahassee and requested he be contacted for any further inquiries. So at this point, Wendy has an attorney. So this is July 20th that Wendy has an attorney in this situation and told the attorney to call the investigator and said, call the investigator. I'm not, I'm not talking to the investigator. Keeping in mind that this murder happened on July 18th. So two days later, she has an attorney. That's fast. So the memorial service ends up being two days after the homicide on July 20th, 2014. And apparently right after the memorial service, Wendy and her children Her children, after their father's funeral, are apparently moving out of Tallahassee. So that ceremony happened on Sunday morning. The family agrees to meet with investigators before they leave. The lawyer calls and says they've already left. They're not meeting. So between the Friday shooting and a Sunday service, Wendy has already had time to hire an attorney. The parents of Wendy, Harvey, and Donna left Tallahassee with Wendy and the grandchildren the day after the memorial service without speaking to the investigator as promised. Since leaving, no one in the family has contacted the investigators or inquired about the status of the investigation. Always an interesting thing, and in a lot of the cases I cover, no one asks about the investigation. Same, it seems, with Corey Richens. It goes on to say, Charlie did not attend the memorial service for his ex-brother-in-law. In In July of 2015, Wendy had her children's surname changed from Markle to Adelson. On July 18th, 2014, 
Dan left his home that morning to drive his two children to daycare on the west side of Tallahassee. He then drove to a health and fitness center. He arrived at the gym where the surveillance video shows a silver or light green Toyota Prius enter the parking lot after he parked his car. After he went into the gym, the video captured the Prius in the parking lot where the driver moved the vehicle to different parking positions while Dan was inside the building. No individuals ever exited the Prius. And then they go through the different surveillance of the Prius and not only the different surveillance of the Prius, but the fact that the Prius was rented, the Prius had a sun pass on it, um, which allowed them to see the movements of the car as it was getting scanned. And because it was a rental car, it also had a transponder. So they were able to track the direction of the car. The car was rented to Luis Rivera. And then it also had Garcia's information with all of their phone numbers in there. They were able to track the car not only to the victim's home, but also to Catherine's residence and other residences. The cell phone data they also tracked of the two shooters, showing them moving along with the car and um, in the same locations as the homicide. They go on to talk about the cell phone records. Cell records show numerous contacts between Catherine and both Charles and Sigfredo Garcia, her children's father, on one occasion, telephone records show contact between Garcia's handset and a cellular telephone registered to Harvey, the father. So Sigfredo Garcia, who was one of the shooters, also had contact with Harvey, the father, Harvey Adelson. And that was on July 1st, 2014. At approximately 1147, Catherine's telephone began to attempt to contact Garcia's phone over the next five and a half hours. Catherine attempted to contact Garcia approximately 48 times. At 5.05 p.m., Catherine made contact with Garcia, and they had a conversation lasting six minutes and 22 seconds. Approximately nine minutes later, at 5.02, Garcia's cell phone attempted to contact Harvey's cell phone. The cell records indicate this call went to voicemail, and then they track those numbers together. The probable cause affidavit and statement of case goes through all of the tel telephone communications on July 18th, 2014, and who is talking to who, how long those calls last. Lots of conversations between Charlie and Donna, Charlie and Catherine, Donna and Wendy. So they track everything that goes on the day of the murder and who is having conversations on the day of the murder. And they line that timeline up with Dan, the victim's movements as well. They also then talk about the lack of cell phone activities. So all of the cell phone activity before the murder, but then the silence of the cell phone activity during the time of the murder. It says on the morning of July 18th, Garcia's telephone activity ceased just before 10 a.m. while in the area of the gym where Dan was, with the last text message occurring at 9.58 a.m. The next event on Garcia's telephone was a text message or notification being received at 12.29 p.m. Immediately afterwards at 12.30 p.m., Garcia placed a call to Catherine, which was the first contact initiated by Garcia after the homicide. So as we see in, in numerous cases, sometimes it's not that the fact, the fact of the phone having activity during a relevant time period, sometimes it is the fact of a cell phone not having activity right during the relevant time period. And in this case, the cell phone is off from the time that Dan is at the gym 
to the time that the murder occurs and right thereafter. And then they talk about where the call occurred from, because of course, cell phone tracing is a thing. The call occurred from Garcia's phone while it was in the area of Lake City, Florida, on or near I-75, approximately one and a half hours after the shooting was reported. Approximately two hours after Garcia and Rivera arrived back to Miami, Catherine departed her residence and went to Rivera's residence while attempting to contact Garcia telephonically. While Catherine, Garcia, and Rivera were together, Catherine had telephonic contact with Charlie. Catherine traveled north to Charlie's residence, where she would remain until the following morning. Catherine stated that while at Charlie's residence, Charlie was armed and acting frantic. Charlie told her his mother and father just left his residence and left money that his mom had washed. Why do they know that? Because she spoke to the police. At Charlie's trial, Catherine testified that the money she received was damp and moldy, consistent with being physically washed and was stapled into $1,000 stacks. That's not what money laundering means, Donna, but also what is happening. Remember, this is the probable cause affidavit and statement of case as to Donna. This is after Rivera, Garcia, Catherine, and Charlie have either been convicted or pled guilty. The only one still pending sentencing is Charlie, and it's a mandatory life sentence. So everyone who is talking is either doing so in testimony at their own trials or flipping on other people when they are talking about this case. But also stapling it, you have damp, moldy money stapled together. What is with stacks of physically wet money? Catherine took a Xanax that was provided to her by Charlie and fell asleep. The next morning on 7-19-2014 at 9.44 a.m., Catherine left the residence and was told by Charlie that the money was in the trunk of her car. She then attempted to contact Garcia. Communication records in Charlie's iCloud show Donna telling Charlie she was, quote, outside your house at approximately 8.59 p.m. on July 18th, 2014. Cell records for Donna and Harvey show an arrival time of 1.25 a.m. in Orlando, Florida, leaving an approximate hour and a half time block consistent with her being at Charlie's residence. 1.25 in the morning. Donna and Harvey traveled to Orlando for the evening and then on to Tallahassee the following morning. Prior to the homicide, Catherine was employed at a Miami-area dental office. Investigation revealed that after the homicide occurred in July 2014, Catherine started receiving paychecks from the Adelson Institute for Aesthetics and Implant Dentistry. Charlie and his father are both dentists. I believe Charlie is a periodontist, um, but they are both dentists. So the checks that are now being received by Catherine were handwritten and signed by Donna. The paychecks started in September 2014 and were constantly in the amount of 407.58, which she received every two weeks. The memo section of each check indicated it was for a period of 10 days, usually preceding the date of the check. The checks continued at least through April 2016. On at least two different occasions, Catherine received paychecks in advance of the time period indicated on the check and frequently received sequential checks. How are you receiving sequential checks? Like if they're going through payroll, they're not sequential checks. Catherine received a significant amount of cash after Dan's murder. In the month following the murder, Catherine deposited over $13,000 in cash. In the six weeks following the homicide, she deposited more cash than she did in the entire year leading up to the homicide. The numerous deposits were conducted mostly through ATMs in increments of 300 to 2,000, 
From the homicide through November 2015, the total amount of cash that investigators identified being deposited into Catherine's accounts was over $56,000. This amount is over and above the paychecks she had received. So there was the checks being written every two weeks, handwritten sequentially for $400. And then there is cash being deposited regularly in amounts under $10,000 so as not to be reported or detected, totaling $56,000 in addition to the $400 checks that were adding up as well. The investigation received that Catherine did not work at the dental office. So the dental office is paying Catherine after the homicides. Catherine was also in possession of an operating a 2001 Lexus LS430 sedan automobile, which was registered to Harvey and previously used by Charlie. I wonder if they were paying for the car through the business as well. Just a question. On January 23rd, 2016, the title for the car was transferred to Catherine and a new license plate was obtained in her name. Motor vehicle records indicate the vehicle was sold to her for the price of $1,700. Catherine received cash and numerous gifts from Charlie since Dan's murder. A review of their financial records indicated that Charlie and Donna had the financial means to finance this murder and provide ongoing compensation to Catherine. On April 19th, 2016, an undercover agent made contact with Donna in reference to Dan's murder. The undercover agent provided a press release of Dan's murder, asked for $5,000, and provided a phone number at which he could be contacted. As a result of this contact, conversations were intercepted. And let's talk about those calls, shall we? Whether you are looking for something to liven up your living space for holiday parties or you are looking for the gift for the person who has everything, our sponsor today, Jetty Kane, has you covered. Not only do they have incredible candles, I'm loving the cedar candle for the holiday season, and they are all hand poured in Los Angeles. So you get a little bit of a West Coast vibe sending those out as gifts, but they also have some incredible pieces that will fit in just about any home. I'm kind of obsessed with the Luna vase because it is so simple and elegant and will fit in any space. Not only do they have home decor, but incredible pillows and throws, cozy blankets, and they've got a great gifting section on their website so that you can find gifts at every price point. So whether you're gifting for them or you're gifting for you, it's time to find your favorite forever pieces at Jenny Kane. And Emily Show listeners get 15% off their first order at jennykane.com slash home with code Lawnard. That's J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com slash home with code Lawnard. I can't wait to see what you bring in to your home from Jenny Kane. Let's get back to today's episode. Call number 1380. Donna called Charlie asking him to meet her about some paperwork that was hand delivered to her outside her condominium in South Beach. During this conversation, when Charlie inquired whether it involved him or others, Donna responded in a whisper, well, probably both of us. When Charlie asked her to repeat herself, she said, probably the two of us. And you probably have a general idea what I'm talking about. When Charlie inquired further, Donna said this was not something she wanted to discuss on the phone. Call number 1382, Donna and Charlie discussed meeting and whether or not Charlie needed to bring cash. 
Charlie inquired whether or not a threat was involved and whether the police should be contacted. Donna responded that this time she did not believe that was a good idea. Call number 1386. Charlie called and immediately told his mother, Donna, don't talk about things in the apartment or any place. He then asked if the person was black, white, or Hispanic, to which Donna said he was white. Charlie said it sounds like something that needs the police. Donna said she may have to, but wants to talk to him first. When Charles asked what the letter asked for, Donna said this TV is probably about five. Charlie asked if they asked for $5,000, to which Donna responded affirmatively. Donna said that they mentioned an ex-girlfriend. Call number 1392. Charlie called Catherine after trying to reach her by phone unsuccessfully for about an hour. Charlie explained the situation to Catherine as he understood it from his mother, something regarding her son, something regarding his ex-girlfriend, and the person asking for some money. Charles tells Catherine that he is going to see his mom the next day to discuss the matter. There is some discussion of whether Catherine is the girlfriend referenced by the agent. Charlie said he thought his mother said the agent mentioned Catherine's name, but he's not sure and will follow up with her if the situation does involve her. Catherine agrees to meet Charlie in person the next day, April 20th, 2016, around 4 p.m. Charlie never contacted other females to discuss the contact between his mother and the undercover agent. The morning of April 20th, 2016, Charlie told his mother he would meet her at home at 1235. After Charlie arrived at his mother's home, his mother's his mother and father's home, he and his mom walked outside to a remote table behind the building, building and sat close to each other while conversing. None of their conversation was successfully captured. After the meeting with Donna in person, he called Catherine and traveled to her in Sunny Isle at the real estate office where she worked. When Charlie arrived at the strip mall where she worked, they talked briefly outside, then went into a restaurant, Dolce Vita, near the real estate office. Their conversation was captured while they sat in the restaurant. The following statements Charlie made directly to Catherine and were previously only audible with use of proprietary software. Through the use of an expert, the audio conversations between Catherine and Charlie were clarified. The following are portions of that conversation. Does the PCA read like a television show? Yes. Y y yes, yes, it does. Yes, it does. But remember, this has already been through trial multiple times. One, if they had any evidence, we would have already gone to the airport. The problem is, even if they bug this, even if they bugged your home phone, but even if they had bugged your phone, okay, but even if they bugged your phone, okay, you're still not talking about any of this. This is Charlie to Catherine. Two, so my point is, how do you get people to talk? You throw in a smoke grenade, and then you get all the cockroaches to run out. There's smoke in the house. There's smoke in the house, and everyone's running, and everyone's talking, and you throw a smoke grenade. What do you think? Next, they may have approached my mom because my dad may be someone who is carrying a gun. Oh, interesting. They think... He thinks there might be officers approaching his mom instead of his dad. You never know if someone's, you know, you don't want it to turn into a fucking shootout, you know? And I can tell you, a lot of times I carry on me. I mean, someone comes up to me, you carrying on you right now? I mean, I'm going to start carrying on one on my back. Like, you know, a holster that fits in your shirt. If someone comes up to me, they better be ready to shoot because I'm going to shoot them. Someone comes up to me and asks for money right now? Yeah. 
And when the, guess what? When the fucking police show up and there's a doctor, there's an oral surgeon standing there with a dead gang member in the fucking driveway, they're not going to come down too hard on me and I'm not going to talk anyway. I don't know much. I don't trust them. So Charlie is telling Catherine that if anyone fucks with him, he's going to kill them and they'll believe him because he's a doctor. He's like, yeah, who are they going to believe? Okay, Charlie. Well, um, your sentencing is tomorrow. Let's 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 continue. I guess he calls her Katie, not Catherine. This next this next portion is Katie. This is this is not like some chick showing off tattoos to your man. This is happening. It's serious because these people are going to come back. They don't go through the trouble of seeking my mom out to hand her that and then go away. So I've got two options. They're not going away may wish they'd go away, never come back, but they ain't going away. The trouble they went through. It then goes into, no, it's very simple. Like, if you're going to charge me, charge me. I imagine that um, this went down well at his trial. It continues on. What I'm saying is, is that this person is not going away. They came very equipped with the details. Where did the details come from? I don't know. The details. Next. Two, they said the guy's name was 2 O. I don't know who the fuck it is. Is there just two O? And then Catherine tells him the name. Tudos. Not two O, Tuto. Tudos incarcerated now. I know that you've been helping out Katie and helping your family and helping out Katie and her family. Now Tudo, Tudo's family needs your help. My mom was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, well, maybe this will refresh your memory. And he handed it to her. And then Catherine's talking and she said, respect, spoke like polite. She goes, polite and well-spoken. I said, did he have any like, did he act thug or did he have to talk with like a thick Spanish accent or anything? She said, no. I said, was he white or Hispanic? She said he was white, but he could have been Hispanic, but that could have been mistake. I mean, everybody in Miami is Hispanic. So, you know, it's like, you can't, you can't tell. He then goes on to say, so Katie, they'll be back. These people know about whoever it is knows information. He then says, let me ask a question. When everybody was there the next day, did any of you take money? It's not like you're driving around in a Bentley cruising around in a mega yacht. You know, someone, he must at some point, because otherwise he'd have no idea I had anything to do with. And then it goes on to say, it could, it could. I wish it was a cop playing games. Interesting that it was in fact an undercover officer, but okay. Why didn't they know it was me? If it was a cop playing games or an investigator playing games and they didn't mention me, they didn't mention your son's girlfriend, not to mention me at all and my family. And I think if they thought I had something to do with it, they would find me and they'd talk to me. You know what I'm saying? Like, go talk to the person who's involved, not fucking people who aren't involved. And it goes on and on and on of the conversations about the undercover approaching Donna between Charlie and Catherine. It then says after this in-person meeting, Charlie called Donna back to report about his meeting and said he is handling everything. Donna then calls Charlie back, sounding very concerned. Because at this point, they have all their phone calls. On April 21st, 2016, calls were intercepted between Catherine and Charlie, and they attempted to disguise their conversation using real estate references such as security, property posted incorrectly, and wrong tenants for rental property. Charlie and his dad, Harvey, met for dinner later that evening. 
Catherine and Garcia were intercepted having numerous arguments over the phone. The morning of April 21st, 2016, it appeared that Catherine was trying to convince Garcia to figure out who the phone number belonged to and place the call himself. In a heated exchange, he said, I'm not making that fucking phone call. He later said, I'm going to take care of this fucking problem. That was call number 825. On Monday, April 25th, 2016, a letter was sent to Harvey and Donna. This letter was sent via USPS by investigators for the purpose of follow-up from the undercover's initial conversation. Oh, the police are continuing to shake the hornet's nest to see what shakes out. This is, again, not uncommon in investigations where the police will try to see what people will say when they have them on wiretap when um, they are met with a little bit of pressure, because that is normally when people start talking. Calls intercepted indicate Donna shared the information with Charlie, who in turn forwarded it to Catherine. Catherine again asked Garcia to either determine who the phone number belonged to or to call the phone number. Catherine reported to Charlie that the phone was either out of service or not a good number. It appeared Garcia lied to Catherine about making the call or had not called the correct phone number. The agent's phone was not called and was working properly after conducting tests to verify. Yeah, that's the whole point of them putting a number in there. That phone is also recording. Later the same day, Charlie called Catherine and asked if she was on her way. It appeared that Charlie and Catherine had been communicating through a different source to schedule a meeting. A later review of iCloud messages from Charlie's records indicate he and Catherine would often communicate via WhatsApp, a phone application that allows for secure communication not retrieved in a cellular record, but retrieved on iCloud. Charlie directed her to Harvey and Donna's building to meet with them. Charlie told Catherine that he was talking to his parents about everything. Charlie continued to try and convince her to meet at Donna and Harvey's building, but eventually agreed to meet with her at another location. And these calls go on through April and May 2016. We are now at May 7th, 2016 at 5.07. Charlie told Catherine about a new CD he wanted her to listen to, indicating that he had a recording of a call between Donna and the agent. Charlie used the reference Pop Belly Pigs, and then they put in, in parentheses, police, to which Catherine responded, that's not good. On May 25th, Garcia was arrested for his involvement on the case. On May 25th, 2016, electronic surveillance suggested that Charlie and Catherine were in close proximity to each other and may have met in the overnight early morning hours. On June 28th, Luis Rivera was arrested for his involvement in the case. This is still 2016. On September 30th, 2016, a proffer was conducted with Luis Rivera in the presence of his attorney. The proffer was not recorded. Rivera was sworn prior to any testimony. A huge thank you to today's sponsor, Quip, for keeping mouths clean, even when my language gets a little bit dirty. This month, I want to talk to you about their incredible water flossers. I have a teen with braces, and getting food out of brackets is incredibly difficult without a water flosser. You guys know that filling this up with some warm water is my favorite way to floss, but it works wirelessly, so you're not fighting to try to find somewhere to charge it in the bathroom, so it's easy for everyone in the house to use, and it just recharges with the magnetic plug into the bottom of the water flosser. It's all in one. You can get the new water flosser tips sent directly to your house on a recurring subscription, just like all the other Quip products. And if you use their toothbrush, their mint and gum dispensers, and all of their other incredible products. You can get them all in matching colors, and they have so many varieties. 
it's going to look good on the counter of your bathroom. So if you're ready to give it a try for yourself, you need to go to getquip.com slash emilyshow for 20% off any electric toothbrush, mint and gum dispenser, or water flosser. That's 20% off any electronic toothbrush, mint and gum dispenser, or water flosser at getquip.com slash emilyshow. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash emilyshow. Quip, the good habits company. Let's get back to today's episode. So this is now what Rivera had to say. Rivera pled guilty in 2016 to second-degree murder for a 19-year sentence, which ran concurrently with a federal sentence he was already serving. So Rivera ran through everything. And Rivera was like, oh, yeah? You want to know what I know? Here. Rivera stated that he had known Sigfredo Garcia since childhood, Garcia told Rivera about a high-dollar robbery he wanted to do with Rivera in Tallahassee. The first time Rivera and Garcia traveled to Tallahassee was in June 2014. Once they departed for Tallahassee in June 2014 was when Rivera learned Garcia wanted him to commit a murder, not a robbery. Garcia promised Rivera $30,000 to commit the murder. While en route to Tallahassee, Garcia provided Rivera with more details explaining a woman with two kids wanted her ex-husband murdered so she could have full custody of the children in Miami. Garcia told Rivera the offer was presented to him by Catherine and the total payment for the murder would be $100,000. Rivera suggested robbing the woman of the $100,000 instead of committing the murder. I mean, I I can understand that. It's like, can we just steal the money and not kill anybody? It's a robbery is way less time. I mean, facts, a robbery is way less time. The two traveled with a long barrel 38 Taurus revolver and a short black barrel 38 Smith & Wesson revolver. Both revolvers, revolvers don't leave gun casings. Uh, the two around the victim's residence and followed the victim's vehicle. Rivera recalled Garcia having a color printed photo of the victim with words printed on it. Rivera could not recall what was printed. They would eventually park the car at Winthrop Park and wait for the victim to leave. Rivera would later show investigators where they parked and the routes that they took to the victim's residence. Rivera indicated Garcia told him that Catherine approached Garcia with the offer of $100,000 to be divided amongst the three of them. $40,000 for Garcia, $35,000 for Rivera, and the remainder was for Catherine. Garcia later offered $2,000 more to Rivera. After losing the victim and failing to complete the murder in June, the two decided to return to Miami. A month later, they returned to Tallahassee to commit the murder. Rivera rented the Prius in his name, in his, in his own in his own name. They arrived in Tallahassee in the early morning of July 17th, the same morning they drove to the victim's neighborhood. While driving around, Garcia involuntarily discharged the revolver into the floorboard of the Prius. Rivera noticed the car starting started losing power, and they learned Garcia shot a hole through the gas line. Wait, it was a Prius? The Priuses have gas? Color me surprised. I thought they were all battery. Maybe they weren't. Were the 2014 Priuses not all battery? How do you explain that when you take the car back into the rental agency? This is beside the point. They were able to repair the vehicle and continue traveling. A search warrant was issued in October 2016 for the Prius. The fuel line underneath the passenger side of the vehicle was spliced together and the corresponding hole was located in the floorboard, consistent with the information provided by Rivera. So the police had the vehicle in 2016 and he's like, we shot through the floorboard and the police went and looked at the car and went, huh. Somebody sure shit shot through the floorboard. The following morning, July 18th, Rivera and Garcia traveled back to the area of the victim's residence where they observed the victim leaving the neighborhood. They followed the victim around town as he dropped his kids off and went to the gym. They returned to the victim's residence. The victim turned off of the road. 
They followed him further down to Benton and entered the neighborhood from the south. They approached the victim's residence. The victim was pulling in the driveway in the front of them. They pulled in behind the victim as he parked in the garage. Uh, Garcia exited the Prius and approached the driver's side of the victim's car. Garcia shot the victim twice in the head. They returned to the Prius and left Tallahassee. And then they gave the directions where they traveled en route. And then Rivera continues on the proffer telling who he communicated that it was done with after this had happened and then what they did afterwards and the money that they got and how they got paid. It goes on to say in October 2019, Garcia was tried and convicted. He was sentenced to life in prison. In April 2022, after the clarified audio recording from Dolce Vita revealed Charlie making additional incriminating statements, he was arrested for first-degree murder, solicitation to commit first-degree murder, and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. In May 2022, Catherine was tried and convicted, and she was sentenced to life in prison. One note is that with her being tried and convicted, her first trial had been a mistrial, but she is now also serving life in prison and testified. In October 2023, trial for Charlie commenced. On November 6, 2023, Charlie was found guilty on all charges. He is set to be sentenced in December 2023. In fact, December 12, 2023, which is also going to be a life sentence. In Charlie's trial, Catherine testified that Charlie told her that his mother, Donna, had just departed his residence at the time Catherine arrived on the night of the homicide. Catherine said the money she received appeared to have been washed, like actually physically. Jail calls from Charlie's guilty verdict include multiple calls in which Donna is telling Charlie that she is getting things in order, creating trust, and making sure her grandchildren are taken care of. Donna discusses plans for self-harm and also discusses plan, plans to flee to a non-extradition country. Donna has considerable financial resources to accomplish this. On November 7th, Donna and Harvey booked flights to Vietnam with a stop in Dubai and then they give the flight numbers on November 13th at 8.10 p.m. Uh, to Dubai. And then they give the information when that flight lands in Saigon. However, Donna was arrested at Miami International Airport before she boarded that one-way ticketed flight to Dubai to Vietnam, which does not have extradition. This is a very thorough probable cause affidavit and statement of the case. Why is it so thorough? Well, when they approached Luis Rivera in 2016, he told them everything. They had a ton of cell phone messages, and then they had all of the phone calls recorded with Donna and Charlie after Charlie was convicted by a jury. They also have testimony at trial from Catherine after she was convicted in 2022. So Donna, the mother-in-law, was trying to flee the country, it seems to me, to a non-extradition country. And all of those calls, all of those calls with Charlie, the jail calls, are recorded. I don't know what any of them were thinking in any of this. But between 2014 and 2016, they were probably thinking that they had, in fact, gotten away with murder and it seems that even now, almost 10 years, well, nine and a half years after this murder occurred, that we are continuing to see new arrests and new prosecutions. How far will that extend? I don't know. Will that eventually extend to Harvey? That's an interesting question. Let's talk about what's in some of the newer documents from Donna's prosecution that is just now underway 
with that arrest about a month ago. So there are multiple search warrant affidavits that have been filed and returned for Harvey's cell phones. So there are additional cell phones that have now been seized and are being investigated in connection with the arrest and now charges by grand jury of Donna. So we have multiple cell phones that are Harvey's cell phones that are now in police custody. In addition to that, we also saw an emergency motion from the defense that we're going to talk about real quick. And then we are going to go to the arraignment of Donna that happened in court on December 11th. So we are going to Donna Adelson's emergency motion to enjoin the jail for an independent psychological evaluation or release on house arrest. This is coming from her defense attorney. Introduction. Donna is a 73-year-old grandmother who was arrested in Miami, Florida on November 13th after her son, Charlie, was convicted of murdering Dan Markle in an alleged murder-for-hire plot. I mean, as to Charlie, Rivera, Garcia, and Catherine, it was indeed a murder-for-hire plot. They've all been convicted. One of them pled. I don't know if this is alleged anymore. I mean, maybe Donna's involvement in it is alleged, but she hasn't been tried yet. But as to everybody else, they've been convicted. The evidence against Donna is circumstantial at best. Here's the thing. Circumstantial evidence bears the same weight as direct evidence. While Donna has been charged with a crime, there is a presumption of innocence in this country, yes. Donna is entitled to a fair trial and has a right to counsel, also yes, and has a right against cruel and unusual punishment, also yes. To date, all of Donna's rights have been violated despite the presumption of innocence in place. Apparently, all of them. On November 13th, 2023, it says Donna was arrested and transported to TGK Jail in Miami-Dade County. Upon arrival at that jail, Donna was placed in a psychiatric unit because of the charges against her. She was placed in an isolation cell with a small sink, mattress on the floor, blanket, and toilet. Donna did not have access to any clothes, cups, silverware, books, blankets, or toiletries, and was only permitted to shower once. I mean, in how many days? Because that doesn't seem unusual. Although she had access to counsel, she was not permitted to use the phone to contact family members. I mean, her husband, but I get that too. Following two psychiatric evaluations, Donna was cleared within 96 hours of her arrest and placed in general population, where she was able to contact her family and attorney. Donna's mental state has not changed since the determination in Miami. She was then transported on November 20th, to Leon County Jail. Her transporters placed her in the back of the transport vehicle with no water. It says several hours into the journey, Donna tried to get the attention of the officers because she needed water and a restroom stop, but she was not able to get their attention. Approximately four to five hours into the trip, when officers finally checked on her, she was shaking, dehydrated, and unable to stand up or move. As a result, the officers had to call paramedics to a rest stop. Upon arrival at the Leon County Jail, officials put her in the infirmary under direct observation. She was then placed in a small solitary unit with a toilet, a sink, a mattress on the floor, and a dirty blanket. She requested a book or Bible, but has not been given anything and has been forced to eat her food with her hands. If she is on a watch, I'm not surprised that she is not being given silverware. The day after her arrival at the county jail, one of the jail's mental health officials began questioning her about medications that she was taking before the arrest. She felt uncomfortable during this interaction because she could not see the official's face and wanted to verify that they were, in fact, a healthcare professional. 
but the official would not verify. When Donna made her concerns known, the official told Donna that Donna is a, quote, fancy white lady who murdered her son and now thinks she has rights. I mean, she's accused of murdering her son-in-law. They go on to say the official joked with other guards about this outside of Donna's door. The official then said that Donna will, quote, learn that fancy white lady murderers have no rights here and told Donna, quote, do you see where you are and do you see where I am? I'm out here because I'm not a murderer, end quote. Since that interaction, some of the jail staff have treated Donna with cruelty. She has sometimes denied her necessary blood pressure medication, and she has been prevented from showering for days at a time. In the 15 days that Donna has been at Leon County Jail, she has only been permitted to call her husband once on November 28, 2023, for approximately five minutes while guards stood watch. It was only with the help and intervention of the state that this call took place. Donna has not been permitted to call counsel at all. At one point, a psychiatrist working in the jail told Donna that, well, if she can't talk to counsel, how does counsel know that these are the things that were said to her? Ma'am, I have questions. If you've not been able to communicate with your client, how do you know all of this? At one point, a psychiatrist working in the jail told Donna that she does not belong in solitary unit, and another jail official told Donna the same thing. As a result of these cruel and inhumane conditions, Donna is becoming weaker and weaker every day, and because she does not have phone access, it has been impossible for her to contact her counsel or take part in her defense. Despite repeated attempts to call the jail, set up video visitation, and or set up in-person visitation, counsel has been unable to communicate with Donna since her transportation to the county jail. Then how do you know any of this? How do you know any of this? How do you know in quotations, what Donna says was said to her. How do you know that if you can't talk to her? Their argument is that the detention conditions violate her Sixth Amendment right to counsel because her counsel is arguing that she does not have access to her attorney to participate in her defense. They argue that the conditions are unconstitutionally punitive, violation of the Eighth Amendment, that they are cruel and unusual because she is being held in solitary confinement, though if she is on a watch, they are generally on a watch alone, so that is not unusual. But if the watch extends too long, then that can be a problem. Requested relief. In order to prevent further constitutional violations, Donna respectfully requests this court to enjoin the county jail from subjecting her to her current conditions of confinement and direct the county jail to place her in a unit where she can prepare for trial and speak to her family or conduct an independent psychological evaluation in order to be placed in a different unit of the jail where she can properly prepare for trial and speak to family. Alternatively, she requests to be released on house arrest, coupled with standard conditions of pretrial release. Yeah, if you're arrested at the airport with a one-way ticket to a non-extradition country after telling someone on a recorded jail call that you are going to go to a non-extradition country, what, what's not going to happen is house arrest. That's, that's, not, that's not going to happen. I appreciate her attorney's effort, but that's not going to happen. So that is the defense's motion to either have Donna held in better conditions and or release her on house arrest. We're going to go take a look at what the judge had to say about all of this at today's arraignment hearing, wherein Donna, through her attorney, pled not guilty to the charges against her. Again, the charges against her are the murder, the conspiracy to commit murder, and the solicitation uh, for murder. I'm going to make my findings as follows as to the issue of there being a Sixth Amendment violation where there is no access this is the by Ms. Adelson to counsel of record. 
I cannot find that. However, Ms. Adelson being able to confer with counsel privately, Mr. Toomey and Mr. Pimentel, is there an ability to make accommodation for that even in the observation wing? Yes, Your Honor, there is. We had a protocol, Your Honor. Very well. What I would ask you to do then is please speak with defense counsel as to what accommodations can be made so she can visit with counsel privately as she prepares for her case. The reason the court is uh, discussing particularly meeting with counsel privately is because defense counsel earlier in this hearing had indicated that she was able to have one conversation with her client, but that it was over speakerphone and there were deputies, jail deputies, there listening um, to the conversation. She was not able to have private conversation with her clients. So they had had somebody from the jail who was talking about the watch that they are, um, the watch that she was on and who determines the levels of security in the jail and who determines which uh, in-custody defendants are held in which levels of detention, et cetera. And then the defense attorney made their argument. And the, the prosecution said, the defense attorney can go visit her. Um, we're not holding her from meeting with counsel. So the judge is saying, look, how can we how can we facilitate this a little bit better so we don't end up back here again um, with an issue of her saying that counsel can't meet with defendant Donna? Obviously, there's a very voluminous amount of discovery that's already been provided by the state. Is that correct, Ms. Kappelman? Yes, sir. She is going to need to be able to speak in private with her attorney. When he says voluminous discovery, I mean, just all the recorded phone calls and transcripts of the previous trials and what the other witnesses have said that I imagine voluminous is, is not an understatement in this case. True. All documents, all records, all manner of evidence that the state is seeking to use as a part of its case in chief. Does she have ability to use either a computer or some form of multimedia while in direct observation? Your Honor, we, she wouldn't be able to do it while in the direct observation cell, but we would make accommodations. We're curious to make that occur. Very well. According to the policy that you already have in place, when will her status as residing in direct observation be revisited? Every day or on a daily basis. Right, Mr. Scalzo, as to issuing an injunction against the jail, I do not believe I have the authority to do so. The District Court of Appeal rulings, and I'm specifically going to cite Bradshaw versus Sandler. This is found at 955 Southern 2nd, 1219, fourth DCA case from 2007. That specifically dealt with a trial court who ordered a defendant to be taken to a dentist of his choosing. Similar by analogy for me to allow Miss Adelson to be seen by a psychiatrist or psychologist that is a third party, is stepping on the separation of powers in that regard. No, the judge is not picking a case where it's involving a dentist just because the other defendant in this case was a dentist. It just happens to be a coincidence that dental is very heavily involved 
at the moment, but the court is saying that I cannot tell the jail what to do. I am the trial court. I cannot force the jail to let her see a privately retained psychiatrist. Really, the only way the court can do that is say these are the approved these are the approved experts for trial and then facilitate those meetings, but not for the purpose of having Donna evaluated to change her custody status and her evaluation status and her level of observation in detention. Those are two completely different considerations. Until there's been an exhaustion of remedies with regard to whatever internal procedure is available for her to avail herself of regarding grievances yeah, or other matters with the jail. With the jail. An injunction is not something that I can entertain person, don't at this first. point. You go if you wish to be heard further. No, Your Honor. Not on this topic. That's the defense. Capel, then, did you have anything further you wish to argue on behalf of the state? All right, Mr. Toomey, Mr. Pimentel, and Chief Mack, if you can get with defense counsel. And we are now getting into the formal arraignment of Donna in court. Does your client waive the reading of the indictment? Yes, Your Honor. How does she plead? Not guilty, Your Honor. Not guilty plea is entered for the record. While we're here, we might as well have a brief case management as well. They continue to have their case management very briefly, wherein the defense says she would like to get this case moving towards trial as quickly as possible and sets the next court date for January 9th. The reading of the indictment is waived, which is really just reading the document that says what the charges are. I'm going to pull that up now so you can see the indictment before we wrap up this podcast if this is a case that you've been following or if this is a case you've never heard of and you're like, how have I never heard of all of this wildness? I need a, I need a chart. I need a flow chart and a graph of how everybody's connected to each other. Either way, please let me know. So let's go to this grand jury indictment real quick. This is the grand jury indictment for Donna Adelson. Date of birth, 2-5-1950. Count one, on or about July 18th, 2014, Donna in the county of Leon, the state of Florida, did unlawfully kill a human being, the victim in this case, Dan Markell, by shooting with a firearm. And the killing was perpetrated from or with a premeditated design or intent to affect the death of the victim. Count two, beginning in 2013 until October 2016, Donna, same county, did agree, conspire, combine, or confederate with Charles and or Catherine and or other persons to commit first degree murder contrary to section 77.04 sub 3 and 782.04 sub 1A1 of the Florida statutes. And then count three, beginning in 2013 until October 1st, 2016, Donna, same county, did solicit another to commit the first degree murder and in the course of such solicitation, command, encourage, hire, or requested the person Charlie and or Catherine and or other persons to engage in specific conduct with which to constitute first degree murder, which resulted in the death of the victim, in this case, Dan. And then it gives the penal code sections that it is contrary to. And that was signed by the state grand jury on November 15th, shortly before her arrest, shortly before that one way ticket to Vietnam, and right after her son was convicted of the same charges. This will go to trial 
I would imagine, um, in 2024, given that the defense has asked for this to move to trial swiftly. Also, given that we are close in time to Charlie's trial, I imagine it will be a lot of the same witnesses, a lot of similar evidence, but more focused on Donna. That is a trial I am very interested in following. It is a trial when it was going on for Charlie, I was asked about quite a bit. So, Lawnards, this is a case that I am interested in keeping an eye on. It will be talking a lot about what accomplice liability looks like, what conspiracy looks like, what is, you know, what are the the acts and furtherance of a conspiracy? What do those charges look like? And going from there. So with all of that, let me know if this kind of intro to the Markle case was interesting to you. Um, but I'll tell you, as watching this case kind of from afar as the trial of Charlie was going on, when I saw that his mother was arrested for the conspiracy to commit murder of her own son-in-law and the the murder for hire of her son-in-law, I was like, what in the world is going on? And the more I look into this case, the more I continue to say the same thing. So with that, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a law nerd. I hope the holidays are treating you well. You know, if your family is difficult, it's probably not this difficult. This is, it's absolutely wild. You cannot make this stuff up. And when you do, you go, that's a bit far-fetched. So with all of it, may your families be well. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your podcast outro not be completely in the wrong order. And may the odds be ever in your favor. I will see you in the next one. Thanks for being honored. You can stay up to date with everything I'm covering on our free iOS and Android app at lawnerdapp.com or search your app store for Lawnerd. And you can also follow me on social media at the Emily D. Baker. Remember, I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I recap all of that for you in quick bits on Monday. And of course, the Emily Show drops on Wednesdays. Thanks for being honored. <laughs>